Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Russia, poised to attack. We should be ready any day. This is our sovereign right to have our troops. Russia's not acting alone. It truly is an axis of evil. Russians using information warfare, disinformation. We are removing the state mandate for masks. Move out of the pandemic phase. They've been coming after me again. Spied on me. Investigations draw closer to him. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It's News and Views for a Friday. Lots to talk about as always. It looks like uh, the maps have been uh, approved and delivered to the Superior Court. Uh, I think they've got a week or so to uh, figure out what they want to do with those. Uh, to talk about that and to talk about uh, some new legislation that was just passed yesterday, which is uh, a piece of tax legislation affecting fishermen and farmers, Keith Kidwell, who represents Beaufort and parts of Craven County, is on the line with us. Keith, welcome back. Always good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you today. Uh, so tell us about this uh, tax bill that you wrote and sponsored and was passed pretty quickly, it sounds like, in the House and the Senate. And as I read this uh, information on the tax bill, the Washington Daily News had a good article on it. I, I can't believe that the governor would even consider vetoing this. It seems like a, a, non, uh, a bipartisan, non-controversial uh, piece of legislation. Tell us about it. Well, I, I, you know, I don't put a lot of faith in our governor not vetoing bills. Um, <laughs> he, he owns about 69% of all vetoes in the state of North Carolina ever. And I, I think he has a particular disdain for a lot of my legislation. So, uh, But I'm, I'm hopeful he will sign this into law. It's, it's very necessary. Uh, literally, as I was waking up yesterday, I realized that an article I had read the day before uh, indicated that the North Carolina Department of Revenue would not have their software and computers ready to run until February 28th. And I was like, wait a minute. Farmers and fishermen have to file and pay their taxes uh, to avoid any penalties for not having paid estimates during the year. It's a, a law specifically targeted to them that they, they can file and pay their tax and, and not get penalized or interest on, on not paying estimates. And if they don't bring their computers up until the 28th, how are they going to get filed and paid by the 1st? Wow. It gives them 24 hours to get it done. I'm like, that's just impossible. Uh, so I contacted Bill Drafting, got the legislation drafted, went to the Speaker, told him we needed to get it done, went to the President Pro Tem of the Senate, uh, spoke with Senator Berger, spoke with the finance committees on both houses, uh, spoke to all the chairs, the clerks, and we got it done, I think, probably in record time, Tom, from the time I started working on it and 7 in the morning, 8 hours later, we had it on the governor's desk. And I'm assuming that it got a bipartisan support from the Democrats and the Republicans both. Yeah, it did. It sailed through both houses with a 100 percent vote, uh, which is probably also a record for any of my legislation anyway. <laughs> so, but what it's going to do is give farmers and fishermen uh, the extension till April 15th only for this tax season uh, that they can file and pay in full their taxes and will experience no penalties or interest for not having paid estimates during the year. Well, there are a lot of farmers and fishermen in our listening area and in your district, and I'm sure they're very appreciative of this. Uh, I, you know, I don't 
Had you gotten any complaints from fishermen or farmers saying, hey, you know what, we, it's, it's coming up and we can't get to the uh, software? Well, interestingly enough, I had not personally heard from anybody at this point, and I'm in the business. Uh, I guess the reason I've not heard anything, quite honestly, Tom, is we're filing returns. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm with the franchise with the, I, mean, I probably shouldn't say it on this show, but yeah, largest franchise in the United States. So H&R, I'm block. With H&R Block. All right. right? Uh, and we actually, our software is up and running and we're filing the tax returns. Uh, block is very agile in those types of situations. So we've not seen a delay. So none of my clients are experiencing this problem. But with that said, I've heard from a lot of people who use the online softwares, I've heard from uh, some other CPAs and whatnot yesterday uh, as I went around to different senators and representatives, like, oh, my CPA has called me about this, or, you know, this different tax office called me about it. And I said, well, this, this is the problem they're talking about, and we need to solve it. Well, for those who say that the cogs of government runs too slowly, go talk to Keith Kidwell if you want to get something passed. That, <laughs> that has got to be record time. Uh, 24 I, I hours? I think it is, Tom, particularly, yeah. Well, not even. I mean, we're talking eight hours. The governor, I, I would suspect the governor has already signed it. Uh, I've not heard yet. Uh, but, yeah, basically right. eight hours from start to having it on his desk. Well, they need to put a plaque up for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, let's talk about maps. Uh, Carolina yeah. Journal is reporting the North Carolina House and Senate gave final approval to redrawn or remedial legislative electoral maps Thursday after last-minute adjustments delayed the Senate session several times, the House gave largely bipartisan approval to its own map, 115 to 5. That's uh, that's pretty bar- bipartisan for your maps. Yeah, the House I was maps. actually shocked by that. Um, we knew we had a, a, a broker to deal with with, uh, with the left to, to try and get some maps through. Um, did, did we lose, uh, Keith? Okay, I see if we can get Keith back. Uh, let me let me pick up uh, Andy Jackson of the Civitas Center for Public Integrity, the John Locke Foundation, of these maps. Uh, and again, all all three have been passed. There's a House map that was passed. There was a Senate map that was passed, and there was the congressional map that was passed. And uh, Andy Jackson said, "I don't think either side's going to be happy with the maps." They diminish Republican power and lessen the odds of them getting a supermajority capable of overturning Cooper's vetoes in the next election. Democrats have an improved chance of winning a majority under the new maps, but those new maps do not help them fully overcome the geographic disadvantages of their supporters being relatively uh, concentrated in a handful of urban areas. Then Andrew, uh, um, Andy Jackson and then Jim Sterling, also the John Locke Foundation, estimate that the new House map has 16 competitive seats, twice as many as the previously enacted map, plus 54 safe Republican seats and 41 safe Democrat seats. Four seats in the new map lean Republican, while five lean Democrat, defined as being within a 5% to 10% swing. The distribution gives Democrats more of an edge than the previous maps that featured 38 safe seats for Democrats. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens after the fact. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this fall's election, both in terms of will we see a turnover in the Supreme Court? There are two Democrats that are up for re-election. And if they were to both, well, if one does, one or both lose, 
and Republicans win, then the Republicans will have the majority in the Supreme Court. Keith Kidwell is back with us. Keith, we lost you. I don't know. Uh, Democrats must be listening in on your phone. I, I was going to say, I think the Dems didn't like what I was saying, probably. <laughs> well, well, pick up. We had just said that it was overwhelmingly um, bipartisan, 115 to 5, to pass your own House maps. Pick up from there. Yeah, so the, the 115 to 5 was quite a shock. I, I didn't expect we were going to do that well with it. Um, but I, I, I suspect the Democrats are probably tired, and, and I think they realize uh, that we've done the best that, that can be done and stay within the parameters of what the courts have asked us to do. So that, that's kind of where we went. Uh, now it's on to the election. Well, assuming the courts approve them, uh, you know, we're very hopeful that that'll happen. Do, do you have any personal gut feel on that? Panel. I, I would think with the bias, bipartisan support we had 115 to five, I would think they'd be hard pressed to not approve the, those house maps. So, now, I assume that, that they will not take them as a whole. They'll take them one at a time. So, in other words, they could say, okay, we like the House map, but Dan Blue was complaining, and he was complaining about the, the state Senate map, saying that he didn't think it was fair yet. Uh, so is it possible that, and of course it goes to the Superior Court first because they were the ones that first heard the uh, case, and then if the Supreme Court doesn't like what the Superior Court decides, then they could overrule the Superior Court. But is it, as, as as best you know, will they decide, okay, here's the House map, we approve that, here's the Senate map, we don't approve that, Congressional map, we do approve that, is that possible, or are they going to take them as a whole? Yeah, so the, the, my understanding is, is that they'll approve each set of maps independently, so it could be that we see the House maps get approved and the Senate not. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can just move forward with the election, guys. I mean, this this is a long, arduous process. Uh, the last time, you you can recall... We literally were in and out of court for 10 years on this. Um, well, the last redraw was when my district was was uh, set up, the 79th district. And so that was uh, just about four years ago. They had the final redraw on what was supposed to be 10-year maps. So, What does your district look like as compared to the old district? Wow. So I will lose uh, Craven County and pick up uh, Pamlico. I'll retain Beaufort pick up Hyde County and almost all of Dare County. And in fact, Tom, I will have a district that's as la- actually larger than the state of Connecticut. It will be the h- largest house district as far as square miles in the state of North Carolina. Yeah, I'm looking at the map now. It looks like you have all of four counties except for the very northern tip of Dare County. Yeah, oh. I think Dare County, if you go to Kill Devil Hills, I cover 8th Street and below. And I have the Collington District, which is off to the west of, of Kill Devil Hills. Okay. Well, um, so. I hope you have uh, nice tires on your truck because you're going to be doing Just a lot of driving. Just putting on last week, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> all ready to drive all over the district. Well, let's hope this uh, let's hope this passes and, and gets on from here. Have you heard any any inside uh, baseball talk in terms of assuming that the uh, the, that the Republicans pick up at least one of the Supreme Court seats that's up for re-election. Two Democrats are running for re-election. Assume the Republicans pick up at least one. Do you think you're going to be back to drawing maps again next year after November's election? Yeah, I, I don't know at this point. Um, you know, we're really concentrating hard on getting these maps through. 
and we're not trying to read any tea leaves or crystal balls. It's just we, we want to get this done. Okay. Get out and get the people's business done. Let the people cast their votes, and and we'll see where we go from there. But uh, well, assuming the I'm court- hopeful we can accomplish three, two, one, Tom. That's what I want to see. Assuming the three, court three seats in the House, two in the Senate, one on the Supreme Court, and the governor becomes irrelevant. There you go. There you go. Assuming um, the courts approve the maps. Or do you have a break now? I mean, is, are you all going to be in recess for a while? <laughs> so we're supposed to go into short session within the next few days. Uh, we're actually still in last year's session. Uh, wow. So I, I don't see much of a break. I imagine we'll break for maybe a week or so and then go back in. Uh, we, we've got to get up and deal with the, the rewriting of the budget. Uh, you know, whatever items need to be tweaked on that. We've got some other legislation to deal with. I'd like to deal with some election laws and, and, uh, See if we can fix some of the concerns that that our people have in that. Uh, there's there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I'm serving right now on a, an interim committee uh, where they're looking at the access to to health care and Medicaid expansion, which I specifically asked to be put on that committee because, uh, like I told people in my office yesterday, uh, they came in about Medicaid expansion. I said, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to work my butt off to make this the best legislation from a conservative perspective it can be. Because if it gets passed, I want to make sure it's, it's doing as little damage as possible. I said, but I will personally vote against it, and I guarantee you the Freedom Caucus will vote against it. Uh, so, you know, while I'm going to try and make it the best legislation, so if it does get by, I, I'm not in favor of Medicaid expansion. So, Let me, let me ask you a sidebar question. When did you go into session in, in the current session that you're on? When did that start, the long session? I think technically it started February of last year. And you really have been. End of January we started going in. But so I think you've been is, in a continuous long session for over a year. That's correct. Yep. I, I, listen, so I don't want to I don't want to spend any more money, but you guys don't get paid <laughs> enough for that. I mean, how in the world do you run a business? You know, I mean, it used to be the long session was, what, six months at the most, and the short session was— You were generally out by July 1st, somewhere in that area. Yeah, so six months at the most, yeah. and the short session was supposed to be two months, three months maybe at the most? Yeah, it's supposed to be two and a half months on the short session, and uh, we've already spent that much time just about since this year started, January 1, uh, in session for what was left of last year so. Yeah, I sat down and figured it out, and if this were a 40-hour-a-week job, which it's, you know, many times it's way more than that, uh, we're, we're getting far below minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> we, we get, legislators get just under $14,000 a year uh, for this job, and the last time that was adjusted was 1992. Wow. So, uh, yeah, yeah, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not eager to spend more uh, taxpayer money, but, uh, yeah, y'all y- 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 deserve a little bit more, I think, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I've, I've been in favor of tying it to teachers pay because that way the teachers would say, well, okay, you know, when, when the legislature gets a raise, they get a raise. And that I think would be a great idea. I don't see how anybody could argue with it. Uh, you know, teachers in North Carolina have, have gotten decent raises. I, I want to say right now to start now just south of 40,000 right. uh, for their first year. And I think teachers and legislators have, uh, as far as the, the work ethic and the amount of time involved in what we do, I think it's pretty similar. It probably is. Uh, This last year, I think you outdid them. Keith Kidwell calling in. (laughs)
Thanks, Keith, for all you do, and uh, stay in touch. We'll uh, hopefully we don't have to talk anymore about maps. Hopefully, the next uh, next go. next week we'll say okay, it's it's said and done, and we've got a primary coming up in May, and uh, I guess it, what uh, February twenty fourth is when they're going to reopen back up those who want to. Uh, file to run for yeah that's, that's correct and i won't see you next week tom i can do a call in if you'd like but i'll be down in orlando for cpac i'll be getting an award at cpac for being well, that's uh, right the what, what day is that conservative so. what day is that going to be uh the actual award they moved it from saturday to friday uh because they wanted to uh, correlate it with a surprise guest that's coming oh okay um so. did you know yet when you're going to be is it an, an evening event or is it going to be earlier in the day because I know those things go yeah, all day. Yeah, so it starts at 4 o'clock on Friday, and it's going to run till probably 10 or 11 o'clock. Okay. Night. We'll probably already be off the air. Yeah, yeah. maybe you'll see Donald there. We'll see. Yeah, yes. I, I think that's in the, in the works. So. <laughs> all right. Keith Kidwell, congratulations on the award, by the way. You are a great Thank you, conservative. Thank you, Tom. You all have a good one. Okay, thanks. Keith Kidwell calling in. we got to take a timeout. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is your Drive at 5, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in 20 minutes past the top of the hour. Taking a quick look at your weather forecast. Tonight, partly cloudy, a low around 34. Saturday and Sunday both look pretty good. Uh, Saturday is going to be slightly warmer, high in the upper 50s, mid 50s on Sunday. But both days, lots of sunshine the cold uh, Saturday night gets down to 27. Sunday night gets down to about 33. Both nights will be clear. And uh, President's Day, Monday, if you're off, pick a good day to be off. It's going to be 67 and lots of sunshine. So all in all, pretty good-looking weekend. The uh, We were talking about uh, Donald Trump being at CPAC. I would not be surprised if he was down there. I'd, in fact, I'd be surprised if he wasn't down there. The Wall Street Journal came out with a really interesting op-ed on the whole Russian collusion Durham report. They say the press court doesn't usually support government spying, but when it comes to Donald Trump, they are making an exception. The journalists who gave themselves prizes for pressing the Russian collusion narrative that turned out to be false are now dismissing news that their narrative was inflated with false information collected by eavesdropping on Mr. Trump. A legal filing last Friday by special counsel John Durham says a private contractor aided the Hillary Clinton campaign in concocting these false collusion tales. Tech executive Rodney Jaffe worked with other researchers to mine proprietary Internet data, including records from the White House. The filing says Mr. Jaffe could access this data because his employer had a, quote, sensitive arrangement with the government to provide Internet services, which Mr. Jaffe exploited to help Team Clinton gather derogatory information about Donald Trump. Mr. Jaffe's response in a Monday statement is worth parsing. It describes Mr. Jaffe as an apolitical Internet security expert who, quote, legally provided access to the Internet data from the White House. Under the terms of the contract, the data could be accessed to identify and analyze any security breaches or threats. Since there were legitimate national security concerns about Russian attempts to infiltrate the 2016 election, Mr. Jaffe and cybersecurity researchers prepared a report of their findings, which they gave to the CIA. The Russians were a legitimate 2016 electoral threat. 
But Mr. Jaffe's statement doesn't explain how or why he cooperated with Clinton representatives. If the contractor's job was to monitor security threats to the U.S., then the responsibility was to report any suspicious activity to the government immediately and in a classified manner. But according to Mr. Durham's filing, Mr. Jaffe's took his information to others, namely lawyers for the Clinton campaign, who also brought in Oppo Research Hit Squad Fusion GPS. This partisan team spent months writing anti-Trump white papers full of unproven claims that they spread to the media. We doubt that the government contracts include, quote, in the case of threats, first call the Democrats. Mr. Jaffe's statement raises more than it answers, raises more questions than it answers. Who in the government provided the contract that gave him such access to White House records? Why did he cooperate with the Clinton campaign operatives? How did he come to hire the same lawyer who worked for the Clinton campaign? We don't apologize for thinking that all of this news that readers might like to know about. This mystery is why the rest of the press corps wants everyone to ignore it. Hans von Spakovsky tweeted, Jaffe's excuse for spying on Trump doesn't pass the laugh test. Great line from the Wall Street Journal. Apparently, his government, K says, in case of threats, first call the Democrats. Uh, and, and Jaffe's trying to sell himself as, I'm, I'm, I'm apolitical. <laughs> we might be apolitical, but uh, at, at best, at best, you're following the money. You were paid off, which means you're a prostitute. You're a political prostitute, at best. I, I seriously doubt. And by the way, this guy is not an American. I think, where is he, from South Africa, I think? But um, w well said. I mean, that's their defense. Oh, we were protecting the White House. <laughs> well, if you were protecting the White House from a security breach, then why did you take your information to the Clinton campaign? I mean, good luck answering that question. Fox News is reporting a North Carolina dad. Get ready. This is cut uh, to Clark. A North Carolina dad hit it out of the park with his anti-CRT school board speech. This is in uh, Cabarrus County. Brian Echevarra, a North Carolina father, his video has gone viral for remarks he made at the school board meeting this past Monday evening where he was criticizing critical race theory. Now, as you listen to this, uh, Brian um, refers to himself, describes himself as biracial. I mean, to glance at them, he looks like he's African-American. But he refers to himself as biracial and multicultural. He hit it out of the park, and uh, at the end of his speech, as you will hear, he got a big applause from everyone present at this meeting. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your service. Obviously, you guys give of yourselves to, to do what you're doing. The community, I think we recognize that now that the political juice has been sucked out of the mask distraction, that we have to move forward. And one of the things I wanted to thank you for tonight was the resolution, the non-discrimination resolution, the CRT deal, because it's, it's happening. And as a parent, I speak to other parents, there's a few things that we don't want. I'm biracial, I'm bilingual, I'm multicultural. The fact is, in America, in North Carolina, I can do anything I want, and I teach that to my children. And the person who tells my little pecan-colored kids that they're somehow oppressed based on the color of their skin would be absolutely wrong and absolutely at war with me. 
And I think that's the same for every parent. What the mask showed us is that the parents, the most powerful group of people in our country, that they're taking back the wheel. Now, obviously, we had to take the wheel back for the mask, but we're taking the wheel back from Washington all the way to Raleigh and into our local school board. Because CRT, all of that, the parents don't want it. It's a big, fat lie. There's not one, if, there, if you believe in CRT, I want to tell you you're a liar. Because that means you look at your black neighbor and say that they're oppressed, and you look at your white neighbor and say that they're evil, regardless of the experience that you've had with them. And we're not going to do that. The parents in the United States of America, right here in North Carolina and Cabarrus County, we know that's not true because we believe the lives we live. The fact is, I've been a business owner right here in North Carolina, and I deal with white people, black people, Hispanic people. My children deal with everybody. And the racism is only happening at the government level and on the media. The fact is, you have racists, and there's like, you can't even find them hardly. You just hear the stories about them. But this is, this is what we're dealing with. The parents are taking the wheel. I have an eight-year-old daughter who is absolutely dynamic, who can do anything, athletically, intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally. She is a dynamo. And I don't want a man swimming against her in the pool. The fact is, I don't want her playing against boys in soccer. I don't even let my sons rough her up. Do you think I'm going to let your son rough her up? This is what we're talking about, policy going back to the parents. Because if you think people who love America are willing to fight for it, you haven't met parents yet. Because I'm telling you, parents will go further down any street than anyone who loves their country alone. My name is Brian Echeverria. I thank you for your service, and we're taking back the wheel. You'll be happy to know that Brian Echeverria is running for the North Carolina General Assembly. Business owner up in uh, Cabarrus County. Uh, you know, it's he, he's right. Racism, it, you want to go out and find a true racist, I know they're out there, but you got to go hunt for them. Racism, you find it where? At the government level, by the Democrat Party, in the media. Well, he did leave out one, you find it in academia. I mean, it's they just keep pounding it and pounding it and pounding it. And, of course, he took it to, uh, and I, I'm not sure where this particular school board is, whether they're anti-CRT or they're uh, furthering it. But, listen, it's in the public school system. And to, to say that it's not and, you know, listen to AOC, she comes out, oh, that doesn't exist. You know, that, that's up at the college level, and it's, you know, it's just a theory. Baloney. I'm sure it's at the college level, too, but it's not just a theory. It is, and I understand, they, you know, they think if we don't use the exact label of critical race theory, CRT, then we can say we're not teaching it. No, you're teaching it. The, um, the positive of this is this is another great example of how moms and dads, everyday Americans and North Carolinians are rolling up their shirt sleeves and they're saying enough is enough. If you've ever wondered why liberal talk radio doesn't make it, it's because that's not where people are. People don't believe in liberal talk. They have no use for it. 
People like conservative talk radio because that's where their heart is. That's where their values are. I don't care whether you're black or white or red or green. Now, I realize there's certain people out there that are sold into the liberal agenda. Oftentimes, it's for monetary reasons that they've bought into it. They feel like they can have more, quote, security and money if they buy into liberalism. I mean, you know, you've got your race baiters. You've got your Jesse Jacksons. You've got your Al Sharptons. You've got your Wee Willie Barbers. They're trying to make a, a, a popularity contest off of racism and a lot of money off of racism. I mean, it's amazing that Wee Willie Barber has his, uh, was it the Poor People's Campaign or whatever he calls it? <laughs> How poor is Willie? The, and now, now, compare that situation in Cabarrus County to what's happening over in San Francisco. The Epic Times is reporting following an overwhelming defeat this week earlier of three members of the school board, including the president of the San Francisco Board of Education. She claims that her ouster was a consequence of the fact that she is fighting racial justice, fighting for racial justice. Well, the truth of the matter is she's fighting racial justice. I mean, CRT is not fighting for racial justice. It's fighting racial justice. But she also says those who voted yes for her ouster were white supremacists. Now, I'm not making it up. (laughs) That's what she said. Now, realize that almost 70% of the people that voted in San Francisco for their ouster, 70% voted for her to be booted along with two others. So I guess if you follow the logic of the school board president, Gabriele Lopez, and I I guess the exact number was uh, like 60, well, 66 to 70%. Two out of three of San Franciscans voted for their ouster. So I suppose then that you've got 66 to 70% of San Francisco, San Francisco, liberal San Francisco, they're all racist, according to this uh, board uh, president. Lopez posted a screenshot of a report about the landslide recall by the Washington Post, which was titled San Francisco recalls school board members seen as too focused on racial justice. The problem, lady, is your version of racial justice is CRT, which ironically is a blatant form of racism judging people not from the content of the character, but by the color of the skin. That's how you want to judge them. If you're white, you're guilty. If you're black, you're a victim. In response, now listen to this. This is out of the Washington Post. In response to Lopez's post, Washington Post political reporter David Wingle commented that her white supremacist complaint doesn't actually hold up, pointing out the supporters of the recall movement were racially diverse. The yes vote for recall was racially diverse, including hundreds of non-citizen immigrants who were eligible to participate, Wingle said. Now, that ought to be somewhat alarming to Democrats in general. Democrats think all these illegals that they're bringing across the border are going to be automatically uh, voting for them. I mean, the Democrats want to bring them over, want to give them all kinds of goodies, financial goodies, you know, from medicine to uh, housing to food stamps, to education, and and they're assuming that these illegal immigrants are automatically going to vote for them. The reason why so many of these illegal immigrants are coming are not for the freebies. They're coming for the liberty and the freedom, 
which ought to get. And again, I don't. I'm not. I'm not advocating for illegals by any means. But the Democrats have overplayed their estimation of how the illegals are going to automatically vote for their progressive ideas. Citing alleged connections to racism, sexism, and other injustices in history, the board last year approved the renaming of 44 schools named after prominent historical figures such as George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. That was put on hold due to the widespread criticism. San Francisco Mayor London Breed, who, by the way, is black, previously expressed frustration over the school district's misplaced priorities and will now need to appoint three new members of the board. And again, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, I hope by some miracle she actually decides to appoint some non-progressives to these empty posts. But even she, even she came out and was highly critical of the three that got ousted. Now, again, maybe she's reading reading the tea leaves and realizes uh, that if she doesn't, go with the 70% that she might be the next one that gets ousted as well. (laughs) Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. Ottawa Police today have been out making arrests of the uh, truckers convoy there is a large police presence on nicholas street protesters are being advised to leave immediately some protesters are surrendering surrendering and are being arrested auto police wrote on twitter we ask protesters to remain peaceful and lawful did, did, did you ask that during the uh, riots back in 2020? Police also tweeted that they wanted to inform demonstrators, quote, under provincial and federal legislation, you will face severe penalties if you do not cease further unlawful activity and remove your vehicle and or property immediately from all unlawful protest sites. Some officers were seen carrying automatic weapons and going door to door along a line of trucks and other vehicles parked in Ottawa's downtown. The operation comes as police have filed charges against two organizers of the Freedom Convoy, Tamara Litch and Chris Barber. Litch, 49, of Medical Hat, Alberta, had been charged with counseling to commit the offense of mischief. Chris Barber, 46, of Swift Current, faces charges of counseling to commit the offense of mischief, counseling to commit the offense of disobeying a court order, and counseling to commit the offense of obstructing police. Canadian TV News added, noting that both are expected to appear in court today. Is it just me, or does it seem bizarre that when you arrest the two leaders of this protest, this convoy protest, that you have the officers carrying automatic weapons And they're charging the two people that they arrested that are heading up this protest with counseling to commit the offense of mischief. (laughs) That doesn't exactly sound to me like an offense that uh, you would need to use automatic weapons on. 
unbelievable. But, uh, hey, that's what's going up in Ottawa. The um, town hall is reporting the Canadian government has announced that um, if the protesters are arrested, and a lot of these truckers have their pets with them in the truck. I mean, they live in their trucks. Some of them have dogs, puppies. And uh, the Canadian government has said to the Freedom Convoy protesters, um, your animals, if you're arrested and you don't get out of here, we're going to confiscate your animals, your pets. Attention, animal owners at demonstration. If you are unable to care for your animal as a result of enforcement actions, your animal will be placed into protective care for eight days at your cost. After eight days, if arrangements are not made, your animal will be considered relinquished. Okay, what does relinquished mean? Well, if now this is my thoughts here, if I mean, I think that's a nice way of saying, um, yeah, goodbye to your dog. If no one's ready to take the animal, it's pretty obvious what will happen. The pet will be put down. I, I mean, is is this is this what the Trudeau government are are they are they that heartless? Are they that cocky that they don't even care about the optics of this? One Canadian replied on Twitter, "This is an unusual form of cruelty." How will your relationship with your community survive this, This really? You know, these are working-class people. How do you ever expect them to trust you again? Have you ever thought that far ahead? Does it even matter to you? Representative Jeremy Faison from Tennessee tweeted, A government that will kill your dog for simply disobeying, disobeying their orders on a public demonstration will eventually have no issue killing you for the same. Trudeau is a fool and a tyrant. Who would have, now? Now you might listen. Well, come on, that, you know, Jeremy, you're taking that too far. Who would have ever thought being charged with mischief and being arrested, facing the barrel of an automatic weapon, and a government saying, "You, you're, you're." Animals, your pets will be permanently relinquished if you don't follow our mandates. Wow. Here is the quote of the week. This is cut one. Senator John Kennedy, Louisiana, one of my favorite, not mincing words when it comes to Trudeau's decision to enact emergency powers on the Freedom Convoy. Here he is on Fox News from earlier this week. He wins first place in quote of the week. So what, Mr. Prime Minister, is your roadmap for getting government off our backs and allowing us to get back to normal? Here's the Prime Minister's response. Uh, Instead of saying, fair question, let's sit down and talk about it, his plan for convincing the truckers that they are wrong is by saying, you're a bunch of stupid idiots. Here's what I hear the Prime Minister saying to the truckers. Look, truckers, um, I'm smart. You're not. I'm educated. You're not. Um, I drink uh, caramel frappuccinos. You don't. I eat bacon-wrapped dates and tuna tartare. (laughs) You don't even know what that is. So sit down and shut up. And 
you know, the trucker's response to the prime minister, well, it's predictable as well. They're bowing up. Now, I would gently say to the prime minister, how can I put it? If, if you're going to be a smart ass, first you have to be smart. Otherwise, <laughs> you're, otherwise you're just an ass. And, and I think he needs to recalibrate and realize what this is all about. Bingo. <laughs> you got to love John Kennedy. By the way, there is a, a trucker-led convoy that will kick off February the 21st, uh, 23rd, rather, from Barstow. Uh, that's an area in California, not too far from uh, Los Angeles. And they're going to begin heading west. What, east. They're going to be heading east on, uh, among other interstates, I-40. So they'll probably end up, though, they're going to head from California to Arizona to Texas and on up towards North Carolina and on up to Washington, D.C. So uh, we'll probably see this convoy uh, coming our way sometime in uh, late March, the uh, People's Convoy, and uh, they're starting out with 500 to 1,000 truckers. Stay with us. I'll be right back. Back to the show that really makes you think. He is a genius. He's all-powerful. He brought a kind of heat. He could be the best. Just don't hurt yourself, okay? More news and views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. So, Senator John Kennedy, I think he really hit it on the head in that quote we just played for you. When he said, you know what, and, and this comes from liberals in general. I mean, just look at their attitude. Look at AOC. Look at Nancy Pelosi. Look at Chucky Schumer. Especially the squad. And, and the these... What's interesting is the statement that he said, we are smart. And I said, I am smart, talking of Trudeau. But this really sums it up. We are smart and you are not. That's the sheer arrogance. But they're misguided because the masses are not following them. Again, they're leading a parade and nobody is following. Populist participation in the Democratic Party has been slipping for years. Um, the party is run by oligarchs. Follow us regardless of what we say. We're allowed to do one thing, but you have to do something else. Do what we say, not what we do. Democrat leadership really doesn't care what the party will look like in 10 years. Uh, the, the party's falling apart. It's eroding quickly. I mean, look at all the, the lead, lead leadership in the Democratic Party. They have very few young – the only young people they've got in their party are are the – Super libs, the AOCs, the squad. They don't care what it's going to look like in 10 years because they're going to be dead. In the age-old debate about the allocation of outreach resources, the left could have done what they should have, which is double down on rural white working class voters. But instead, they've gone all in for the urban-based elites. And they want the praises of the transgender community, the CRT community, the woke community, even though they're a minority. As a result, the Democrats decided to do something that is basically killing their own party. Democrats saw their hopes in a huge House majority die due to the failure to reach out to people who are, are not unhinged woke progressives. 
Trump might have lost in the last election, but Republicans made big gains in the House, whittling down the Democratic majority to just four seats. By the way, the fact that Republicans won a lot of House seats while the president lost is why it's really hard to fathom that Biden actually won. That has never happened before. Now, the level of hatred for Democrats has reached biblical levels, especially in rural America. Pro-Joe Biden stickers are hidden. It's interesting. You you still see MAGA hats. Have you ever, have you ever seen a Biden hat? I haven't. Democrats feel like they're on the run. The party's brand is so toxic in the small town 100 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. Some liberals have removed bumper stickers and yard signs and refused to acknowledge publicly their party affiliation. These Democrats are used to being outnumbered by local Republican majority, but their numbers continue to dwindle to the point that they feel increasingly isolated and unwelcome in their own communities. The hatred for Democrats is just unbelievable, said Tim Houlihan, an accountant based in rural McKean County, who recently encouraged her daughter to get rid of the pro-Joe Biden bumper sticker. He said, I feel like we're we're on the run. The climate across rural Pennsylvania is indicative of a larger political problem threatening the Democrat Party heading into November's elections. Beyond losing votes in virtually every election since 2008, Democrats have been effectively ostracized, ostracized from overwhelmingly white parts of rural America, leaving party leaders with few options to reverse a cultural trend that is redefining the political landscape. Obama won 875 counties in his overwhelming 2008 victory. Twelve years later, Biden wins 527 counties. I mean, that's, that's more 350 counties less. Actually, the exact number is 348. 260 of those 348 counties took place in rural counties, according to data compiled by the Associated Press. Again, look at a map, uh, uh, you know, a color map of uh, the the counties that are uh, that and precincts that Biden won, and it's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, Trump beat. I mean, geographically speaking, Trump beat Biden. The worst losses were concentrated largely in white areas across the Midwest. 21 rural counties in Michigan flipped from Obama in 2008 to Trump in 2020. Democrats lost 28 rural counties in Minnesota, 32 in Wisconsin, and a whopping 45 in Iowa. At the same time, recent Republican voter registration gains in swing states such as Florida and North Carolina were fueled disproportionately by rural voters. Again, Democrats will try and right the ship. They've tried to do so, but it's not succeeding. They can't do it. Frankly, the money and the activist pools all center on the woke slice of the Democratic base. That also poses another problem for the left. White progressives are starting to take over the messaging as they fill the coffers at the expense of black and other non-white voters who have been loyal party voters for decades. Money talks. Also, non-white voters are not as intense when it comes to almost every issue. On racial sentiment issues, especially, non-white voters are very different from their white progressive allies in the sense that they know and acknowledge progress. Again, going back to that piece we played at the beginning of the program, that dad in Cabarrus County talking about CRT. You know what? 
it, there are blacks that look at where the Democratic Party is going, and they are scratching their heads. Immigrants are not voting with the Democrats. Blacks are not walking in lockstep with the Democrats. The Democrats are totally losing it, and as a party, just like Justin Trudeau, his political days are numbered. The Democratic Party as a whole, their days are numbered as well. That's the good news. Enjoy your weekend as you think about that. I'll see you on Monday. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right.